Thanks, Lori. Today marks the beginning of a season of Advent. You can tell by the purple that's up here. No, we're not sporting husky colors in the church. Please don't make that mistake. The idea here is that we go through a process every year of repeating the story of the life of Jesus. And we start by celebrating Jesus' birth, his nativity, and then working through his whole life until we come to Easter where we experience uh, the crucifixion and the resurrection of the Lord, his ascension, and the coming of the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit was poured out on the church. It's a 26-week cycle. We repeat year after year after year after year where we live through the life of Jesus one more time. But the season of Advent also has another purpose for us in that it reminds us not only how to reflect upon Jesus's first coming, but it also helps us think and wonder for a moment of how we're preparing for his second coming. And so Advent is our opportunity to say, how am I ready for Jesus's presence here, not only today, but in the coming reign and rule of God that's in the future. If I had more time, we'd talk about the colors, what they mean and all that stuff, but suffice to say, we're preparing. We lit one candle on our Advent wreath this morning, and that's the candle that symbolizes hope. And hope is what we're going to center on today as we talk about the story of Zechariah. This is the first story of Jesus's birth that occurs, but it doesn't describe Jesus's birth at all. It has to do with a man named Zechariah who, will, who is married to a woman named Elizabeth, and together they will be the parents of John the Baptist, the one who comes preaching in the wilderness before Jesus starts his public ministry. We're starting a new series of sermons today called The With Us God. It's a little bit of a play on words because we want to center on what it means for God to be with us in our lives, not only as individuals, but as a community of a church together. And what does it mean for God to be as close as the air we breathe? For oftentimes we think that God is far off, aloof, some deity hiding behind a cloud that has to be appealed to. In reality, God is immediate, close, present, ready to move and work in our lives and in the life of our church. And we want to center on that God, that God that is ready to move in our midst, like in Zechariah's midst. Zechariah is an interesting character in that he gives us a great snapshot of what hope looks like. Because hope, first of all, is the fuel of patience. I mean, after all, why is it that we practice patience in different settings of our life? When you go to the doctor's office and you're there waiting for an hour for the doctor to come in, you actually hope you'll see the doctor, right? So that's why you stay instead of saying, well, the doctor's five minutes after the appointment. I'm out of here. No, no, no. It's the hope of seeing the physician that keeps you waiting and waiting and waiting. And there's a lot of things in our life just like that. Zechariah had been waiting for a lot of things in his life. Zechariah was a priest, and his priestly responsibilities were in the Jewish temple that was in Jerusalem. And the Jewish temple was the center, of course, of Jewish worship during the days of Jesus. And Zechariah was one of 24 different divisions that had responsibilities to work in the temple. And so that meant for one week out of every 24 weeks, he'd be responsible for going up to Jerusalem, doing his priestly duties, and then he would return home. So that means over the period of a year, he would go up to the temple to work for a week twice a year. So his 24-week rotation would go through, and then another one, and on and on it would go. 
But one of the issues that Zechariah had to deal with that was very troublesome and problematic for he and his wife Elizabeth is that they were unable to have a child. And they had come to a point in their life where they were well past their childbearing years. So it meant that they were, well, as the text tells us, too old. And so all of the hope that Zechariah carried about having a child with his wife Elizabeth have now come and have now gone. And it's important for us to recognize what that means. In today's world, that's not much of an event. There are many people who remain single for their whole lives or people who perhaps are married and they have no children. That's normative for us. But in the ancient world, in this world, to be married and to have no child, to be barren, meant that you were cursed of God that you or someone in your family had done something wrong at some moment in time and that resulted in you being barren in your household with no children. So imagine what it's like for him being a cleric, if you will, a priest, whose life bears witness to the fact that God has somehow judged him unworthy. He bears that stigma every time he goes to the temple, every time he goes about his duties, he carries with him that burden of somewhere, somehow, something has gone wrong and displeased God, and that's why they have no children. It's for this reason that Luke goes out of the way at the beginning of the story to say that he and Elizabeth were righteous in the sight of the Lord. They were blameless, because Luke wants you to know, even from the beginning of the story, that their barrenness actually has nothing to do with anybody who did anything wrong but it's actually for a larger purpose and a larger mission that we're going to hear about in this story today. Hope is the fuel of patience. Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth have been patient for God to do this work in their lives, and it has seemingly never come about. And so what he does is he goes about business. He goes about the work of his life. While he's dealing with whatever disappointment he has or grief he has that this expectation isn't fulfilled, When it's time for his week of priestly service, what does he do? He goes up to Jerusalem for his week of priestly service. He goes through his life exactly as it is laid before him, even while he carries his own sense of waiting and disappointment about having a child. It's interesting when we hear this story that he's moving through the routine of his life, when oftentimes we as people, when we're faced with waiting, we stop. We, we stop living, we stop moving, we stop things because we're waiting for something to happen. And Zechariah is giving us some lesson here that life moves forward even while we wait. The point of waiting isn't for you to sit still and turn blue holding your breath. The point of waiting is believing in God's faithfulness that will act at the right time. And meanwhile, you will go about the work in the ministry that God has given you each and every day. I used to work at a church in San Diego, and when I was there, we had a woman who worked on our staff who was our children's ministry director. And she and her husband had one child, and she was working full-time at the church, and working in San Diego was a real struggle for her and for her family. And while it was a struggle to do that ministry and that work, she and her husband were also trying to have a second child. And try as they might, they weren't able to have a second child. They went to doctors. They had all kinds of consultations. A lot of things happened in their lives to try to have a second child, and they just could not have one. All the while that was happening, 
She came to work. She did her job. She committed herself to the ministry God had given her while she and her husband were waiting. Sure enough, after a period of time, they decided that the season of ministry in San Diego needed to end. And so they picked up their family and they moved, it's hard to say, Texas. And they went to Texas and she began working at another church doing children and family ministry there. She kept doing the work God had called her to do. She never stopped being filled with the sense of knowing that she needed to do what God had put in front of her, even though there was this huge expectation in her life that was not fulfilled. Well, after not too long of being in Texas, she and her husband finally, out of the blue, for no particular reason at all, other than which we all know, turned up pregnant. And they have their second child, who is a little over two years old today. For me, she teaches me a remarkable story about Zechariah. It's almost carbon copy, dealing with kind of the grief and disappointment of having life not line up the way you would think it needs to or the way you want it to. But while you're waiting, she persisted and stayed focused on that which God had called her to do. She just didn't stop and hold her breath and demand that God do something before she took the next step in her life. She took it. Incredibly brave and courageous witness. So, so questions I might ask you to think about are this. Where have you run out of a sense of hope today? And where has hope given you a deep sense of patience? And what does that in-between time of waiting feel like? People will tell you that I'm one of the most impatient people around. And so I know what it's like to be in that in-between time. It's hard. What's it like to be in that moment? Well, Zechariah not only helps us understand that hope is the fuel of patience, but Zechariah also opens us up to something else. And, and it's this simple truth. We don't know what we don't know. It's actually a play on words by the Greek philosopher Socrates, or for those of you who are fans of Bill and Ted's excellent adventure, Socrates, who said this, I only know that I know nothing. So really there's three bodies of knowledge that exist according to this axiom of we don't know what we don't know. The first body of knowledge is the stuff you know that you know. So everyone, two plus two is what? Four. See, that's knowledge you know that you know. But this last week, you might notice that uh, NASA sent a rocket into space that circled around the moon for the first time since the Apollo missions. Now, I know that happened. I know it occurred, but I do not possess the knowledge to tell you how that happened. So in that case, I know what I don't know. And then there is that other body of knowledge, the one where you don't even have an awareness that something's going on. That's the, I don't know what I don't actually know. You're caught off guard and unaware. And the disappointing truth for many of us, but the inspired truth of the Bible, is that it's that third space that God loves to work in. The space of, we don't know what we don't know. God is always working in that space. Zechariah had something interesting happen on his week of priestly service. On that particular week, he came to work in the temple. They take assignments every day for who's going to do what job. They draw lots to determine who's going to do that, different responsibilities, that is. 
And one of the responsibilities every day, it happens twice a day, is one of the priests gets to go into the temple and light the incense on the altar of incense during the morning prayer and the afternoon prayer. And it's a sacred responsibility. And if you listen to the podcast this week about this text, I've talked about it a little bit more at length, but I'm going to try to make it as brief as I can here. Uh, The temple, Jewish temple, looks like uh, if you took a shoebox and turned it on its side. It's like a giant rectangle with a really tall ceiling. And uh, there's two chambers in it. There's this main chamber called the holy place. And in the holy place on the left is seven golden lampstands. In front of you is an altar of incense. And to your right is a table with 12 loaves of bread on it called showbread. Then there's a big curtain, and the curtain is right behind the altar of incense. And behind that curtain is called the Holy of Holies. And it's there that the Ark of the Covenant is supposed to go. The problem is, is that in the time of Zechariah, the Jewish people had lost the Ark of the Covenant probably two to 300 years earlier. But luckily, Indiana Jones stole it from the Nazis, and it's in a warehouse in Nevada Okay, now it's two popular culture references in one sermon. I'm done, all right? So the ark isn't there, but in the Holy of Holies, only the high priest can go in there once a year. That's it. And that's on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. Otherwise, the closest anyone can get to the Holy of Holies is that altar of incense. Because when you walk up to that altar, you're right in front of the curtain that separates that. So that was considered to be a huge and sacred responsibility for any priest. So when your name was selected for that responsibility, it was considered to be a great honor, and you were only allowed to do it once in your lifetime. Many priests wanted to do that job. It's In other words, if you're the priest, it's the most coveted job. Got it? So if you're working as a valet, that's the person who drives in with a Lamborghini for you to park. Third popular culture reference, sorry. Zechariah's name gets chosen on that day, and it's his moment. He finally gets this awesome responsibility of being able to go in at 3 o'clock in the afternoon to light the incense on the altar of incense. It's a huge honor. He'll only get to do it once in his life. But he probably perceives it as a concession. Because remember, this is a man whose life is filled with a level of disappointment that he and his wife have no child. So this will work. I get to light the incense on the altar of incense. Seems like a good concession to him. Little does he know what's going to happen when he goes into the temple to do that. He thinks lighting the incense is going to be the high point of his priestly career. Little does he know when he gets in there and lights the incense, what's going to happen. The angel Gabriel is going to appear to the right of the altar and is going to speak forth a message to him. We'll talk about that in a minute, but for right now, just hold on to the fact that Zechariah feels like, well, I got something. I'm going to light some incense at the altar. Should be good enough. Uh, there's a story of a, of a young man who got his learner's permit to drive. And when he got his learner's permit to drive, he uh, went in and talked to his father, who happened to be a minister, and said, Dad, I wanted to discuss with you when I could drive the car. And the father says, well, I'm glad you asked about that. If you pull up your grades, if you start reading the Bible a little bit more, and you cut your hair, we'll talk about you driving the car. So a month goes by. And after a month, the young man comes back in to the father again and says, Dad, I wanted to discuss driving the car with you again. 
And the father says, well, I do notice that your grades have come up. I also can tell that you've been reading your Bible more and more, but you haven't cut your hair. And then the son says, oh, I'm glad you asked, Dad, because in my reading of the Bible, I found that some of the greatest people in the Bible never cut their hair. What about Samson, who never cut his hair his entire life? And when he did cut his hair, he lost all of his strength and power. What about the prophet Samuel? He never had his hair cut, and he became one of the great prophets of the Bible. You know, I was even reading the stories of Jesus, and there's not one story about Jesus having his hair cut. And then the father says, wow, I'm impressed. You've done your research on men in the Bible who have or have not had their hair cut. But there's something that you didn't quite catch, and that is Samson and Samuel and Jesus. They walked everywhere they went. <laughs> Got to let it sit in for a minute. They walked everywhere they... No car, right? Okay. Sometimes what happens is when we're waiting for something very specific, our vision begins to narrow. And as Zechariah gets older, the window of opportunity for he and his wife to have a child begins to get so small, he actually abandons it probably. So his vision for his life starts to get narrow and narrow and narrow until he eventually goes, well, at least I got to light the altar of incense. It comes down to that. It's a reductionism that gets him to a place where he says, well, that's all I got left. And what we need to hear from this story is what happens is remarkable. That it's in his moment of doing the work he's supposed to do and even giving up some of his hope, then the angel Gabriel appears to him. Tells them that he and his wife Elizabeth are going to have a son. They're going to name him John and tells them everything about what his son John is going to do. It's a good story, isn't it? Wouldn't we like the same thing to happen in our own lives? You see, it's a little bit of a mystery that's going on here because God is at work doing something that Zechariah doesn't see, that he didn't even know was coming. This is the perfect moment where Zechariah doesn't know what he doesn't know. He doesn't know that his entire life of going through this season of barrenness and having no child was for this very moment. This moment when God could do something amazing in his midst beyond all of his expectations. You see, friends, what God wants from us isn't hard work. What God wants from us is dependence. What God invites from us is relationship. So is it better for you to know all the answers or to know the one that knows all the answers? Is it better to have certainty or is it better to trust the one who knows all things? and is working in all things. See, it's a, it's a mysterious thing that Zechariah is invited into. It's really hard for him to wrap his mind around it. It's so hard for him that he actually looks at the angel Gabriel who has appeared to him. Can you imagine an angel appearing right next to you? And then you have the audacity to look the angel in the face and say, I, I don't get it. How's this going to happen? I mean, come on. It's a rich story. Here are some questions for us to wonder about. What happens when we act with too little information 
And how do our expectations shape our action trigger? There is moments in life when we're so expecting something to happen, we choose to act impulsively. That's like when we uh, leap before we look. What practices might help maintain a mystery with God? And how might this mystery change the way we pray? How might it change the way we pray when we, when we can let go of the things we want or think we want and simply say to God, God, I, I trust you with all that. I'm going to give myself to you this day to do everything you've called me to do this day, and I'm going to do what you've called me to do, and I'm going to finish my day doing what you've called me to do, and I'm going to trust you with everything else. It changes the way we pray. Well, the last thing that Zechariah teaches us, it's very important, is he does something unusual. He keeps sacred the ordinary and the extraordinary. So when Zechariah hears what the angel Gabriel says, he responds like many other in the Bible when an angel or a messenger of God appears, he asks a question. And his question is, is how can this be since I and my wife are too old? Is basically what he says. The way Luke phrases it in Luke chapter 1 is the grammar of that sentence of the question is identical. It is a carbon copy of what Abram said in the book of Genesis when he was told that he and his wife Sarai would have a child at their advanced age. It's no accident. Luke wants you to think about for a moment how God was calling forth a new people in Abram and Sarai, and now God is calling forth a new people again John the Baptist, and in Jesus. The connections are designed to be clear for us, that God is doing a new thing. So Zechariah asks the question, and then Gabriel says, I love the answer. Dude, I am Gabriel. I stand at the presence of God, and I've come here to give you this message. So the subtext here is, seriously? Seriously? Hmm. So while he's going about his priestly duties, God interrupts. God speaks a powerful word. Let me tell you another story about how this, I experienced this moment in my life. Um, in 2012, 10 years ago, I was on a pilgrimage with members of my church, and we had been traveling in the footsteps of Paul through Turkey, Greece, and eventually Rome. And we visited all seven churches of Revelation. On the very last day of our pilgrimage, after 19 days, there we were in Rome. And it was the day before we were due to come home. And we visited this place. This is the Basilica of St. Paul. Now, the Basilica of St. Paul is not a giant tourist destination, as you can tell how many people are in there, because that picture right there is not a stock picture. That is a picture that I took when I was in Italy a few months ago when I revisited this place. No one was there. I was the only person in the building. This basilica is larger than St. Peter's Basilica in the Vatican by square footage. But St. Peter's is in the Vatican. It's where everybody goes. They want to go see the Sistine Chapel, see what Michelangelo has been up to. They want to go see the Vatican Museum, on and on. But no, no one goes here. This is outside the old city of Rome. It's built atop an ancient cemetery. And the reason why it's built atop an ancient cemetery is because of what's inside this basilica, which unlike St. Peter's, is very Spartan. There's not a lot of statues in it. There's not a lot of paintings. It's very kind of stark when you come into it. And up in the very front of the church, we'll show you what it looks like, there's an altar there. And the altar is built over the grave 
or the tomb of Paul, Paul the Apostle. And so there's a, a glass floor you can see at the bottom of the photograph where you can look down into the ground, and that's the bottom of the estuary where the apostles' remains are. And there's an altar built over the top of it where the Roman Catholic priests say the Mass over the remains of the Apostle Paul. So at the time we took this trip to this location, um, I was in a deep period of discernment in my life when I was pastoring this church of whether I should stay at that church until I retired. At that point, I had served them for seven years, and I was wondering if I needed to spend the next 20 there until I retired. And I was really wrestling with that, and so was our leadership team, and we were trying to discern whether or not this is something we should look toward doing, because the ministry was moving well, and we felt like God was doing some great things. And so we were weighing all that out. So I walk into the Basilica in 2012, and right next to me is our uh, main prayer warrior in that church. Her name was Jean Riggs. And um, she and I were walking into the church together, and we get up to the front, and we look at the Apostle Paul's tomb. We, as soon as we set eyes on it, I hear an audible voice. And the audible voice says to me, your heart is with him, not with them. And what I heard was actually the voice of God speaking to me in the most profound way, a way I hadn't heard since I was called to ministry when I was 17 years old. And what God was saying to me is that your heart is not with you being with this church forever and ever, amen. Your heart is with the apostle, the one who goes forth, the one who goes to places and preaches and brings the good news of Jesus. You're with him. And as I heard that voice, like as loud and clear as you're probably hearing my voice right now, Jean Riggs standing next to me, she grabs my arm. She looks at me right in the eye and she begins to weep as she's looking at me. And I look at Jean and I said, did you hear that? And she says, no, but you did. It was a pivotal moment in my life. So I was there on a pilgrimage, leading people from my church around the ancient world. Here I am in Rome, responsible for 40 people. Not a good plan, by the way. That's the chronos of time. There's a Greek word for time in the Bible. It's chronos. We get words like chronological or chronography from it. It's the linear passage of time. And at that moment, I was engaged in the linear passage of time. I was there at the time we were supposed to arrive to be in the basilica, and we were going to leave at a certain time to go to the next thing we were going to go to. Then there's another Greek word for time. And that word is not chronos, it's kairos. Kairos is the Greek word for time that means interruption. It's the word for time, and we think of it like this. Now is the time. It's the time that breaks into everything and interrupts everything. And for Zechariah, he's in the temple doing his priestly duty, burning incense at the altar of incense. That's his chronos. It was his duty on the 24th week of his rotation to show up and do his job. He's in his chronos. And in the chronos, God appears in the kairos and brings him this message that would change his life. When Zechariah has this moment where he simply says to the angel Gabriel, how's this going to be since my wife and I are old? The angel explains to him what's going to happen and then tells him that you're not going to be able to speak because of your unbelief. It's very much akin to how uh, um, 
when Jesus would do something or a miracle or a teaching and his disciples would say, you're the Messiah, then he would tell them what? He'd say, don't tell anybody. Keep silent. And so Zechariah has to cover this up. And it's easy for him to do because he can't speak. He can't say a word to anybody. So Zechariah finishes lighting the incense. He's had this moment with the prophet Gabriel. He comes outside of the temple and all the people are gathered around. It's a little after three in the afternoon. And he's supposed to speak to them the Aaronic blessing. You probably know it, even though you don't know the name of it. May the Lord bless and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you. That's the Aaronic blessing. He's supposed to say that, and then the people leave and go home. He comes out. He can't talk. The text tells us he gesticulates around, trying to help everyone, like some kind of weird game of Pictionary, to figure out what's gone on with him. They know something's happened, but he can't describe it. For me, that's a fantastic text. They knew something was going on, but couldn't describe it. I think that happens in our life with God all the time. Something's gone on, but we can't quite describe it. Zechariah goes home. Sure enough, his wife Elizabeth gets pregnant, and they will eventually have the boy, who would be called John the Baptist. It says they stayed home in seclusion for five months. Why five months? Because that's the next time Zechariah is on duty. About five or six months later, he's got to go back to Jerusalem on his priestly rotation. They live in secret and in hiding. If the angel Gabriel appeared to you and told you what was going to happen with your life over the next six to nine months, wouldn't you probably tell other people? He gets to tell no one. He gets to tell no one. There's a lesson lying here for us about the sacredness of the ordinary and the extraordinary. He's engaged in the sacred activity of his ordinary. I'm in the temple. I'm lighting incense. That's the chronos. The extraordinary is the kairos when the angel Gabriel appears. And that Kairos moment continues when he goes home, Elizabeth becomes pregnant, everything begins to move forward. We're guilty in these days, my friends, of oversharing. I think part of the life of the mystery of God is holding things close. And Zechariah and Elizabeth hold this close. The text never tells us whether Zechariah told Elizabeth what happened. There's an intimacy to it, a closeness to it. And I think sometimes we're so guilty of oversharing that it really, in a sense, betrays our need for deep intimacy. That in place of deep intimacy with other people, we just overshare stuff everywhere. We're a little too public. The mystery of God requires us to be discreet at times, quiet, reflecting on what God is doing and how God is working especially when we've lost a little bit of hope, when we're just not sure how things are going to work out, when we think the situation we're in might even be impossible for God. Hmm. God always shows up and does something great. So some questions for you to wrestle with this week. What place or setting do you have to practice a closeness with others? And how often do you have this opportunity? How are you giving expression to what the Holy Spirit is doing in your life? Hmm. Zechariah offers us so much. Hope is the fuel of patience because he persists and he stays patient even when things are at their worst. 
He recognizes that we don't know what we don't know. And he finds a way to rest in the mystery of God's grace. He keeps sacred the ordinary and the extraordinary. And he finds nurturing outlets for God's work to proceed. This is a glorious story, isn't it? About how God interrupts our everyday work. Let's pray and ask God to give us that kind of hope. Lord God, we thank you for the the hope that you reveal in this text. That even in the difficult days of barrenness, you bring forth a witness through Zechariah and Elizabeth and John the Baptist. And it's in his ministry we hear the call to repentance, to cultivate and prepare our hearts for the coming of the Lord Jesus. We are thankful, God, that he is the Elijah that comes before the anointed one. But I'm also thankful, God, for Zechariah, even in his practical disbelief. You work, you move, and you have your way in him. What a remarkable story it is for this couple well beyond their childbearing years to have a child and have it set right next to the story of Mary, who's well before her years of bearing a child, that she will have one. We're thankful, God, for hope that keeps us patient, waiting for your goodness and your grace to come. Forgive us, God, for all the ways in which we try to rush your hand. We act with such certainty in our own hearts and minds. Remind us of what we don't know. And help us to live in the mystery of relationship with you. Dependence on you. We pray and ask all of this in the name of Jesus. Thank you.